Take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 7 this morning. We come to this seventh chapter finally in Mark's gospel uh, of action. It is a fast-moving gospel, the fastest of all the gospels, the shortest of all the gospels. And this is the 23rd message as we're going through this gospel on Sunday mornings. For those of you that are guests today, not normally with us on Sundays, our Our typical process is that we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we are going through the gospel of Mark. I am going to to warn you this morning that the subject title of Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 13, and even carrying on into next week, they are very convicting words for most of us who have grown up in church. And let me say before I begin that I stand before you this morning with very bruised feet, Because all week in preparation, my feet have been stepped on time and time again on this subject. It is something that over the last 10 to 12 years, the Spirit of God through the Word of God has really been dealing with me about. And how many of you know that surgery is needed, but it's painful? And that has been the process, honestly, for myself over the last 10 to 12 years as the surgeon, the Spirit of God has begun to work these things uh, in my life, deal with me about these things in my life. And so I pray for us individually this morning. I pray for us as a church collectively that we will allow the Word of God to be the authority in our life and that as it speaks to us and as the Spirit of God convicts us that we will be willing to surrender ourselves underneath its authority and underneath its direction and that we will, after today, Uh, be a people who live and serve God from a heart that beats more closely to the heart of God. I can promise you by experience that the result of of doing that, the result of of, uh, responding to this, this type of message will be something that will cause a more authentic, a more real, and a more joyful relationship with Jesus. So if you're able to this morning, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read down through verse number 13, beginning in verse number 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of Jesus' disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashing hands... They found fault. I would encourage you to mark that little phrase, they found fault, because these people were experts in finding fault in other people. Verse number three, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands, oft eat not. Here's another phrase, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they can't come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why walk not the disciples according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat, with, they eat bread with unwashing hands. And Jesus answered and he said unto them, well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, here's a key phrase, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God. And here is where we will draw our title this morning. You hold the tradition of men. You hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. 
And he said unto them, Full well, ye reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. And then he gives them an example of that. Verse number 10, 11, 12, and 13. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. This is a biblical principle. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say it is a gift, a designated gift, by whatsoever thou might be profited by me, he shall be free. In other words, you came up with your own tradition to get around the commandment and the principle of God's word, and you suffer him no more to do all for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect. How? Through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask you, through the Spirit of God, to search our hearts and to reveal to us, Lord, things in our life that should not be there attitudes that should not be there, actions that should not be there. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would come with humility, that we would set aside pride, that we would set aside self-preservation, that we would come with humility, that we would come with honesty about ourselves, and that we would come with a hunger to know you and to fellowship with you and to serve you in a more joyful and authentic way than we ever have before and to be more effective for you. And we pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In our text today, Jesus confronts the superstars of religion, the, as they would say today, the goats, the greatest of all times of the religious elite. It would be like me calling Michael Jordan and saying Michael Jordan or LeBron James. We won't get into that debate. But one of them and saying, hey, I've got some tips for you in basketball. It would be like me going to Miss Delilah Clark and saying, Miss Delilah, I have some tips for you on baking apple pies. It would be like me calling up Bill Gates and saying, I've got some financial advice for you, Mr. Gates. Jesus is confronting those that would never have been confronted about religious matters because they were looked at as the experts in religion. They had convinced themselves that they were, and they had convinced others around them. And I think that verse number 7 is the key verse of this section. It's the key to understanding this entire incident. Look at it in verse number 7. It says, How be it in vain do they worship me? In vain do they worship me? Is there anything Worse that could be said about a group of people who claim to be the people of God, the elite followers of God, than that they worshiped him in vain. That their worship of him really is what he is saying. It is empty worship. It is pointless worship. It is lifeless worship. It is hypocritical worship. And this hypocritical mindset, it was deeply embedded into the hearts and minds of the religious Jewish leadership of Jesus' day. And let me say that it is also deeply embedded into the fabric of how many today in churches think and act. I think that as Christians, it's something that we have to guard against naturally, isn't it? 
It's something that we have to make sure that we keep out of our our life and out of our heart and keep out of the attitude that we have. So the entire Bible points us to the reality that God desires us or desires for us to worship him from the heart. Remember last week, Deuteronomy chapter six, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy what? Heart. With all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And then Jesus reemphasizes this in the New Testament in Mark chapter 12, speaking again to the scribes and Pharisees. He says in verse number 28, And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. He had to continue to re-emphasize this into the hearts and minds of the religious people because it was easy for them to begin going through the motions, to begin to be filled with pride and arrogance and think that they were somehow exalted above those people around them. You see, having an authentic relationship with God, it is not dependent on us checking off a a a checklist of things that we do each and every day. It is about worshiping him in spirit and in biblical truth. Not in spirit and in man's tradition, in spirit and in biblical truth. And if we don't like to hear preachers preaching on hypocrisy, in fact, when they begin to talk about this and Pharisees, maybe something inside of us doesn't like to hear it. Let me say, if you don't like to hear it, you wouldn't have liked to hear Jesus preach very much because he addressed it a lot. He talks about it a lot. His most blistering rebuke to the external focus hypocrites comes in Matthew chapter 23. And as we've been studying this gospel, we see his love, we see his compassion as he heals and he delivers people and he raises them from the dead. But we also see that he unleashes his rebuke on these people who are so focused on all the externals, they miss the heart of Christianity. There's three characteristics of hypocrisy and Phariseeism that I think Jesus points out in our text this morning, and then a result. So four things I want us to look at. The word hypocrite came from a Greek word that is defined as one who wears a mask, a term that was given to the Greek actors. And so as Jesus calls them this, Jesus is about to pull the mask back and expose the Pharisees for who they really are, not who they appeared to be. First of all, and quickly, we see that their attitudes placed emphasis on external conduct over internal cleanness. Their attitude placed an emphasis on external conduct over internal cleanness. Look again at verse number three. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Not the tradition of God's word. Let me just say right here that not all tradition is bad. You can say amen there. Not all tradition is bad. The tradition of the gospel is a tradition that ought to be passed down, right? The tradition of Bible principles. Somebody said it like this. The tradition of the gospel is the living faith of the dead. 
But traditionalism or tradition of men is the dead faith of the living. I like that. It is not the the dead faith of the living that we want, the tradition of men, but it is the tradition of the gospel. These folks were so emphasizing external conduct over internal cleanness. And so from Jerusalem, they send this prestigious group of legalistic, self-righteous, externally religious members of the establishment. And what are they there to do? They're there to confront Jesus. They're there to confront him because he is not, not, they're not there to confront him because he is breaking biblical principle or he's breaking the law. They're there to confront him because he is not adhering to the extra traditions that they have laid on their people. This time, it's over the tradition of hand-washing. And the tradition of hand-washing, it was not hygienic in, in the least It was simply a tradition to show the super spirituality of these people that they were washing their hands as a symbol that they did not want to be defiled with the people that they may have come into contact with in the market. They didn't want to come uh, to be defiled by anything that they had touched. And as we see in our text, don't miss this, it is all about tradition. Tradition, tradition, tradition. Mark it in your Bible. Verse number three, the tradition of the elders. Verse number five, the tradition of the elders. Verse number eight, the tradition of men. Verse number 13, your tradition. They had, they had added many specific rules as law and they had elevated their tradition. They had not just recommended their tradition. They had not just said these would be good things. No, they had made them equal to scripture. Look, look at, uh, to the point, look at the, the point here that he is trying to make. That, that breaking tradition commands made them more upset than, than breaking the scriptural, uh, scriptural principles, the scriptural commands. Breaking the traditions of men began to upset them more than breaking scriptural commands. How many of you have seen that in the world today in which we live? People get more upset about us not doing something that they have added to the word of God than they do breaking the word of God. The problem was their attitude, and their attitude was that that they were more focused on external conduct than true holiness of the heart. We preached on this this past this past week, that, that God calls us as his people to be holy, to be set apart. But listen, holiness is not a list of external things. Holiness begins in the heart of man. And it is from the heart that we should be most concerned. And that leads us to our second point. Their loyalty was tr- to traditional practices over biblical principles. Their loyalty was to traditional practices over biblical principles. Look again at the last part of verse 6. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I would say that they probably thought, if you were to ask them, Brother Don, is your heart in uh, alignment with God? I, I think that most of them would say, yes, it was. But Jesus informs them that they have misjudged, listen, they had misjudged the heart of God. 
They had misjudged the heart of God. Jeremiah says this, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and it is desperately wicked. And let me just throw a caution out here that you may in your mind and heart think, hey, I have the the heart of God and wanting to focus on all these external things. And you may have misjudged the heart of God because he is much more concerned about your heart and your walk with him and your relationship with him and your fellowship with him than he is all the external checklists that you may be concerned with. He says in verse number seven, in vain, in emptiness, they worship him. Why is their worship vain? Why is their worship empty? Can you imagine coming in here and worshiping the Lord week after week and Jesus stands up to you and says, your worship is vain. Your worship is empty. It was empty because they equated their tradition with Scripture. They were experts at twisting Scripture. They were experts at taking a scripture and trying to make it fit their external rule or decontextualizing it to make it fit their outward-focused agenda. And so look at the regression in regards to how this affected their attitude towards God's word. You say, this, how dangerous is this? It's very dangerous. Because notice how it begins to affect us in our view of God's word. Look at verse number 8. It says, they lay aside the word of God. Verse number 9 says, they reject the word of God. Verse number 13 says, they hinder the word of God, making it of none effect. How sad is that? That these traditions and these externals become so important in their life, they would never say this. But in all honesty, by the way that they respond and by the way that they live their life, it trumps the word of God. It takes priority over God's word. Not only has this practice of elevating tradition affected them, but now, listen, now it's preventing and it's hindering the scriptures from getting into the heart of others. It has become more of a focus than the gospel itself. It has overshadowed the reason that Jesus came. And look for a moment at the difference between God's truth and man's tradition. God's truth will produce an inward faith. God will work from the inside out. Man works from the outside in. Man will say, if we can just get you to do certain things, look a certain way, then we can know that you are becoming holy and you are becoming clean. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of your heart come the issues of life. Focus on the heart. In other words, God's truth, it provides principles and it provides liberty. That's why you come in here and not everybody looks exactly the same. God's word, God's truth provides principles, and liberty. Tradition produces a mold mentality. It decides a standard. And look, that standard has scripture with it, but it also has additional add-ons given by man. And then it wants a carbon copy of that in every life. It wants everybody to look just like you came off of a machine, a cookie-cutter Christian. God's truth will produce inward holiness. Man's traditions will produce outward 
piety. God's truth exalts the word. Listen, God's truth above tradition. God's truth exalts the word above any tradition. Man's tradition exalts the tradition equal to or above God's word. Their loyalty, don't miss this, their loyalty was to traditional practices rather than biblical principles. Rather than allowing the word of God to speak to us, they pushed their practices on on people. Number three is this. Their traditions were motivated by selfishness and greed. And we see this in the example that he gives them in verses 10 through 13. He gets behind the, the closed doors of their hearts to expose their motivation. And he gives them an example of their greed and their selfishness. See, as children grew up, there was a biblical principle. There is a biblical principle that ultimately they would take care of their parents. They would honor them. However, these Pharisees were greedy. They were selfish. They didn't want to spend their life doing that. They were greedy. And so they came up with a loophole, getting around having to spend the money to care for their parents. And that's what this little phrase is talking about in verse number 11 when it says it is Corbin. Corbin was basically a man-made tradition of designating money to God. And if we didn't spend this money while we were living, then it would go to the work of God. They would designate it, and the whole reason that it was designated was so that they could get have a loophole around a biblical principle because of their selfishness and greed. They could get around having to, to take care of their, their parents. They skirted around this commandment of honoring their parents by coming up with traditions that were motivated by greed and selfishness. And look, I've come to realize... I've come to realize in my own life that many man-made religious add-ons today, they are motivated by selfishness and greed. Now, we would never say that. But a lot of the reasons that we want them, in other words, I need to prescribe these extra biblical, traditional add-ons to others for my benefit so that I will look good. This is, this is for me. This is for my own benefit. Their traditions were motivated by selfishness and greed. Their loyalty was to traditional practices. Their attitudes placed emphasis on external conduct. And lastly, the result of their hypocrisy was a harsh rebuke from Jesus Christ. Now, it's not in Mark's gospel because you remember Mark is a fast-paced gospel. He, he leaves out a lot of the little details. So I want you to take your Bibles as we close and go to Luke chapter 11 because Luke fills in. This is the same account as we just read. Luke just gives us more detail about it. So Luke chapter 11 gives us Jesus' response to them, a very harsh rebuke. You may call these the woes to the Pharisees because you will see that word woe come up again and again. And that word simply means great grief. Great grief to you, Pharisees. First of all, he gives them a rebuke about wrong priorities. Woe unto you, verse number 42. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God 
These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Jesus says you're so concerned with your outward performance and the way that others see you that you tithe what you should and even beyond what you should, the rue which wasn't even required of a, of a tithe, you do that. And as a result of that, you're so focused on that that you pass over the heart things. You pass over the justice of God and the love of God. He says you ought to have done these things. You ought to have been generous. You ought to have tithed. Of these things, but not in disregard for God's demands for love and justice in human interaction. You are so concerned with the outward expression of tithe and doing these things, these lists that you know that you should do, that you miss the greater things. In other words, you pass over the greater things and major on the minors. A a rebuke about wrong priorities. Secondly, there's a rebuke about pride and selfishness. Look at verse 43. Here it is again. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you love the uttermost parts, the uttermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the market. These uttermost seats would have been the seats of honor. They actually would have been up here on the stage, seated along the stage where you were actually facing the congregation. And these Pharisees and these hypocrites desired these seats. They desired to be seen. Not only that, but as they would go to the marketplace, a handshake wasn't good enough. They wanted to be acknowledged. They wanted a bow. They wanted a kiss of the hand. They wanted to be acknowledged. You say, where does that come from? Selfishness and greed. And God says to them, Jesus says to them, Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you love those seats of honor and you love to be acknowledged by your titles. The third rebuke he gives them is a rebuke about their negative influence. Verse 44 and 45. By the way, if this is you and this is me, we need a warning because we are influencing other people around us in our hypocrisy and our Phariseeism. One of the most strategic moments in my life came when I came home one Sunday afternoon after an incident had happened at church with one of our children. And I pulled Kim into our bedroom and I said, we have to change something because we are raising little Pharisees. We talked about what had happened that day at church and we determined that there were going to be some things that changed in our life. That we were going to focus more because I'll be honest with you, in my early days, it was all about the externals. It was all about making sure that my children looked good and proper and above board. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but it was selfish in motive. And when I began to see them ignore other people because they didn't look like them or weren't dressed like them, I realized we are missing the boat. We're missing the boat. We need their hearts to be given to God. And he gives them here a rebuke about their negative influence in verse 44 and 45. He says, you Pharisees and hypocrites, woe unto you, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying thou reproaches us also. And this points us back to the Passover time when they would whitewash all the graves to help them 
look beautiful, keep beautified. And what Jesus is saying is you Pharisees are like whitewashed graves. You look great, but as a result, people don't even realize that by rubbing shoulders with you that they are touching death, that they are being influenced by you, by your Phariseeism. Then the fourth rebuke is one about the absence of concern. In verse number 46, he says, Woe unto you, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and you yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. You're, you, you load all these things on them, and you don't help them. It's, again, it's not about really the glory of God. It's about you. One of the classic examples of their unconcern is in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse number 11, and I'll read it to you for sake of time. Listen, behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. And he said unto her, woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And said unto the people, there are six days. There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In other words, if you can't work it out, on Friday, then I'm sorry, you'll have to wait till Sunday because you're not going to come on the Sabbath day. Then look at verse 15 and 16 at what Jesus says. The Lord then answered them. And he said, thou, here it is, the mask, thou hypocrite, doth not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to watering? Of course you do. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who has an eternal soul, by the way, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus exposes, really, their careless heart. Their concern for themselves alone. And then lastly, or fifthly here, he gives them a rebuke about deceitful reverence in verses 47 through 51. He basically confronts them because they never admitted to their fathers killing the prophets. And he says to them, in essence, you are also killing them on your, in your teaching. On the outside, everything is so right, yet on the inside, there is death and sin. And notice what he says in verse number 51. It shall be required of this generation. And by the way, it's interesting that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was leveled. Perhaps this was the judgment referred to by Jesus in verse number 51. It shall be required of this generation. And then the last thing he tells them here is a, a rebuke about misguided teaching. In verse number 52, you've taken away the key of knowledge. Mark that phrase. You've taken away the key of knowledge. And this is perhaps the most tragic of all, Jesus himself being the key of knowledge. They had ignored it. They had rejected him. And now they were holding the key. Not only had they rejected him, now they're pushing other people away from him. The people who rejoiced in him and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, thinking that he was going to come and establish a political leader, uh, leadership When they realized that he was going to be crucified, they're the ones who cheered, crucify him, crucify him, rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Ultimately, they rejected him. Why? 
because he rejected their traditions. Because he reprimanded them. I wonder this morning if we could be honest enough to see ourselves in some of these things. Though on the surface everything seems okay externally and we look the part. Perhaps there is a heart that would rather see traditions upheld than people's lives changed. As one preacher pointed out, I am guilty of hypocrisy when I am more interested in religious tradition than biblical teaching. I am guilty when I am so concerned that my life matches some kind of mode, that my church fits into some kind of conservative mode for the approval of some outside source. Someone said that the favorite saying of a church bound by tradition is, we will always do it because we have always done it. I'm guilty of hypocrisy, he said, when I'm more concerned, don't miss this, with the operations of the church than I am the objectives of the church. When the modes of operation become more important than people being saved and growing in their faith, we have fallen into a ditch. A mindset that is okay with us four and no more as long as you don't mess with our traditions, you don't mess with our services, you don't mess with our schedules, you don't mess with our furniture. When times of gatherings and classroom preferences and instruments and song selections and decorations become more important than evangelizing the lost and equipping the believers, we are in grave danger. He says, I am guilty of hypocrisy when I am more diligent in my appearance before men than my approval before God. So are you condoning immorality? Are you condoning a looseness? Are you condoning immodesty? Absolutely not. I'm trying to tell you that the answer to a culture that is drunk on immodesty and immorality, even in the Christian realm, The answer is not in tradition of rules that are extra biblical. The tradition is diving into their hearts and really trying to get them to hide the word of God in their heart and be led by the spirit of God in their own life day in and day out so that God will produce genuine holiness instead of us trying to produce man-made holiness in people's lives. Something that will last. Something that will not cause them to get bitter and want to give up, but something that God does in their heart. It is true holiness that is generated by the Spirit of God that is the need of the hour. And how can we change? First Peter chapter 2, we'll be done. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, How do we do it? As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know what he's saying here? The answer to it is to begin to desire the word of God like a baby desires the milk of its mother. An intense desire for the word of God. That truly diving into this word, God's word to us and being led by the spirit of God will cause us 
to love him in such a way that we want to live for him and we want to please him. Have you tasted salvation? Have you tasted the forgiveness of your sins? Here is a warning to us this morning to everyone who who hears this message. It does not matter if you can go through a list of things that you have done or ways that you look or you've attended church for all these many years. It is not about what you have done. Jesus did all the work on the cross. It is about you beginning a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. As as Holly just sang about, he was our substitute. We are sinners. We needed a perfect substitute. And Jesus alone is that perfect substitute. Only by putting your faith in him and, and trusting in him and turning from your sin and admitting you're a sinner and coming in, in repentance and faith to him can you have everlasting life. It is not by works of righteousness which you have done. And so unless you have come to that place, I beg you this morning, if if that's you, to come this morning and allow someone to show you how you can have eternal life. Jesus says to many of these Pharisees, that was his whole last point there, you aren't saved. You aren't saved. You have all the externals, but you are as lost as the drunkard or the prostitute out there because you're trusting in your religious deeds, your religious affiliations. And there's certainly a word in here to us as believers as well that we allow God to work in people's lives. And rather than berating them about all the externals, that we let them know that we love them and we care about them and hey go dive into a bible study and come to church and immerse yourselves in the word of god and get around other believers and may that be the focus of our of our admonition to other people instead of me training my children unless they look like you avoid them I'll go ahead and tell you the example that I was talking about. When children were little. We had a family that we were visiting that we had invited to church. And I told one of the children, hey, I want you to go over to that little girl. I just gave it away now that it was you, Jordan. You're the hypocrite. <laughs> I want you to go to that little girl and invite her to sit with you. And I remember Jordan told me something. I'm not going to give you all the details, but... She basically pointed out some external things saying, I don't need to invite her to come sit with me. You know, later on in her life, I'm so thankful that as we began to adjust some things in our parenting, that she was the first to go to those girls, the first to go to those people, the first to love on them and witness to them and pour her life into them. Thank God there was a defining moment where it clicked that it is the heart, it is the gospel that changes people. And may that be our focus. And we don't have to walk around being the teacher that checks off everything that's not right and wrong. Because guess what? They have the Holy Spirit in them. And if we will teach and preach the word of God and let the spirit of God do his work, we don't have to worry about all those things. Say, do your children do everything just like you do, just like you would like them to do? No, but I know this. They have a heart for God. They walk with God. 
And that doesn't mean that they're always obedient to, to God, but the Spirit of God will lead them and guide them and direct them. And may we as a church, may that be our testimony. Not that we compromise, not that we don't have any type of standards. That's not at all what I'm saying this morning. If, you, if that's what you walked away with, you missed the whole thing. My, my point is, is that we must be focused on the gospel and people's hearts because that is truly what changes. Father, we love you and we're thankful for your word. This is a hard message to preach. It's hard for me. And yet, as I see what you've done in my own heart, in my own life, and yet, even in study of this, I realize there's things in my life, in my own heart, that I need to fix, that I need to work on. And God, I pray that you would help us as Christians, Lord, to be people who love people to Jesus. And Lord, even Christians, that we teach them and we train them the word of God and the clear principles of God's word and the clear truths, but that we're careful not to add our preferences, our things. Some of those very things that we think are, would push people away from God are the very, very things that actually do push them away from God. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray if there's people here today that they've never began a personal relationship with you through faith in Jesus, that today would be that day that they say, I'm not trusting in my works. I'm not trusting in a religious system. I am putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ.